Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. We'll be reading Romans 9, 19 through 29. And the word of the Lord reads, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said, From the word of God I gather that damnation is all of man from top to bottom. And salvation is all of grace from first to last. He that perishes chooses to perish, but he that is saved is saved because God has chosen to save him. After 10 years of pastoral ministry, if there is one truth besides the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that I wish that, that I could convey to everyone that I meet, if I could cause them and help them to understand and embrace, it is this. God is vastly greater than our imagination. That is a truth that I, I want everyone to understand because I believe with all my heart, if we actually understood that, then most of the theological issues that we face today, I believe would, would disappear if we just believed what the Bible clearly teaches about God being vastly different from us, we would finally, I think, be in a position to understand God as He reveals Himself to us in His Word. In fact, while you have your Bibles out, please just turn with me really quick to the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. And if you're not sure where that is, you just kind of go to the middle of the Bible where, the, where Psalms are. It kind of goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Isaiah, and, which is right before Jeremiah. And Isaiah 55 is the place where we need to be. Isaiah 55, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. 
And Isaiah writes these words. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In his commentary in Romans, the late John Stott once wrote, Most of our problems arise and seem insoluble because our image of God is distorted. And that's just really, I think, the truth, because it seems there's something in all of us that wants to take God and pull Him down to our level. We want to make Him more like us. We want to make God like us so we can relate to Him, so that we can understand Him on our own terms, rather than His. That's why there's so many bad caricatures of God in our culture. But the problem is when we do that, we distort who God is, and in the process we make a mess of our relationship with Him because our relationship with Him is directly related to our understanding of Him. If we have an immature image of who God is, then we'll have an immature relationship with Him. And again, notice what Isaiah says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know if you've ever meditated on that scripture before and thought about that. Have you ever thought about how much higher the heavens must be than the earth? Is it just as high as the sky is? Or is it as as far from earth to space? Or is it even greater than, than that? There was a point in my own life, this question caused me to really think and ask, you know, what does this mean? How much higher is the heaven above the earth? And one day I ran across a scientific website that that said that the observable universe, that what we can see is 96 billion light years across. 96 billion light years. And and that actually was several years ago when I ran across that. And scientists actually today, because of the new telescope technology, believe that it's actually bigger, even much bigger than that. But but even if it's just 96 billion light years, that is a distance, I don't care how smart you are, that is a distance that our little minds cannot hold. You and I do not have a frame of reference to, to understand the number 96 billion, much less what 96 billion light years is. No one has a clue. I mean, think about this. The sun in the sky, by the way, praise the Lord for the sun today, right? It is finally a nice day. But the sun in the sky, it is 93 million miles from Earth. If you want to know how, that, how far that is, you take the distance of what it caught, what it, how long, you take the distance of circling the Earth around the equator, multiply that times, 3,700 times, that's the distance from earth to the sun. 93 million miles. A distance by itself that bends the ability for us to relate to. But even more than that, the light that comes from the sun travels at 168,000 miles per second. That's how fast the speed of light is, by the way. 168,000 miles per second. Second, 
And at that speed, it takes eight and a half minutes from the sun's light to reach the surface of the earth. It means when we go outside and you look at the sun, you know that that's what the sun looked like eight and a half minutes ago. The warmth that you're feeling is the warmth that the sun let off eight and a half minutes ago. The distance between the earth and the sun by itself is staggering, even though that we can go outside and see the sun, we can see that it's there. But a light year is 186,000 miles per second times 60 seconds times 60 minutes times 24 hours times 365 days. That equates to, in your notes, 5,298,048,000,000 miles. That, that is equivalent to traveling to the sun from Earth 57,000 times. A distance of one single light year. Now, think about this. That's one. But how about 96 billion of those? And if we were actually located in that 96 billion, that means in every direction you look, all the way around you, the universe is 48 billion light years in each direction. Our minds do not have a frame of reference for the magnitude of that size. We just don't. We don't have the ability in our human experience to relate to that. But here's the thing that we do know. The God that we worship created all of it, the entire universe, down to the tiniest little nanoparticle. He created it all, from the biggest galaxy cluster to the smallest boson. And he knows where all of it is, and he knows what it's all doing at any point in time. And not only did he create it all, he himself is greater than all of it which means he is infinitely bigger than the universe itself. That, that is more than mind-blowing. And what the scriptures teach us is God is completely outside of the universe, but at the same time, everywhere, fully present in every part of the universe. Well, if the size of the universe baffles our mind, then how much more than the God who created it? If there is one truth that we need to understand is that God is greater than the limits of our wildest imagination. And that means then, manifestly, God is not like us. He is far away, different from us. No matter how hard we might try to bring him down to our level, he is not the same as us. Now, we might be made in his image, but he isn't like us. He is infinite, eternal, self-existing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and sovereign. We are finite, temporal, dependent upon God's exist God for his for our very existence. We have limited knowledge, limited power, and we control very few things if we control anything at all. This is the truth that we need to settle our minds in. This is the great truth, the indescribable difference between God and man, between the creator and the creature, 
And until we embrace that, we will continue to walk in the fog of theological error. And that's what Paul in this text before us is 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 doing. He's going to address that very issue, the truth that there is a distinction, a great distinction between God and man, right? That God is greater than the limits of our imagination. By the way, that's why Matt picked the songs that he did to prepare our hearts and minds to receive that truth. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And uh, before we jump in, as you make your way there, um, as always, it's important to remember where we are in context as we work through this letter. Paul spent eight chapters masterfully explaining the, the truth of the, the, the gospel in his letter to the church of Rome. And he explained for us what the gospel is, the bad news of man's condition, but the good news that there's salvation in Christ. He then explained the blessings of the gospel, that we have peace with God, and that we have the love of God poured out in our hearts, and we have a hope that doesn't go away. He also then explains how the gospel actually works. How is it that Christ can be our substitute? And then he explained the freedom that the gospel gives us, not only freedom from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, but also freedom from bondage to the law to make ourselves justified. And then my favorite part is when he explains the absolute surety of the hope that we have in Christ, that those who trust in, in Christ are safe forever in the hands of God. And the first eight chapters are a masterpiece of theology, and, and they are by far the greatest explanation ever found in the, God, in the Bible. But there's a huge objection that Paul faced at the time, an objection to that gospel, an objection that actually threatened to undermine the gospel if it were true. And the objection is this. If so many people who are Jewish who physically were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? the very people who were given the Old Testament law, the very people who were part of the Mosaic covenant, if they didn't believe the gospel that Paul claims is taught in the Old Testament, if they reject the gospel, then either the gospel itself is simply not true, or if the gospel is true, then the word of God in the Old Testament, specifically the promises made to God's people, had failed because the Jews believed themselves to be God's people. They believed that being Jewish gave them the right to be called God's people. They believed that being Jewish justified them before God. And, and, and Paul's response right, to this objection was to explain that God's promise of salvation has never been about what a person himself brings to the table. It has never been about a person's ethnicity. It has never been about a person's biology or family relationships or nationality or religiosity or even their effort to try to obey some laws or to make their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Mankind brings nothing to the table that warrants God's salvation. As it's been said, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Instead, Paul explains from the scriptures that salvation has always been about God and His sovereign election. It's always been about God's sovereign choice. God has always chosen His people. And this isn't a new idea that Paul invented. It's found in the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul cites those Old Testament scriptures. Paul said, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing 
either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Paul made it clear that those who become part of God's family do so by God's sovereign grace and election. And that is the clear meaning of the text. God sovereignly chooses who he will redeem. And and as we talked about last week, this is a subject that people have struggled with for 2,000 years. Whenever the topic of God's sovereignty and salvation is brought up, there are typically two objections that people bring to the forefront. Number one is the objection that it's just not fair, that God is unjust. That's not fair of God to choose some to save and not others. But we, but we addressed this last week because this objection is actually based on three false assumptions. That we puny human beings have the right to sit in judgment of God, number one. Number two is the false assumption that God is somehow obligated to us. And number three is the false assumption that God doesn't have the right to choose. But the truth is God has the right to choose because he is free to do everything that he wants. Not to mention, what we want from God is not justice and fairness. What we we want, what we need is mercy. Because it is by God's mercy that anybody can be saved. And Paul explained in the previous text that God has the right to have mercy on whom he has mercy. God has the right to use sinful people and their rebellion for his glory. Because he is God. That's the answer to the first objection. And then the second objection that is... That is, is if this doctrine of God's election is true and he is sovereign and in control and God chooses who he who will be saved and hardens who he will, then man really can't be held responsible for his sin. That is not his fault. That's the objection that we see today. In fact, Paul writes beginning in verse 19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, Paul jumps right in and asked the question himself on behalf of his audience because he's probably heard that question many, many times. In fact, that's the question that's been raised countless of times for the last 2,000 years. If God is sovereign and God is the one who chooses whom he has mercy on and whom he hardens, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Because he's God. I mean, if, if, if this is the truth, some people will say, Aren't we just robots doing God's bidding, right? Isn't this, does this mean that, that the future is fatalistically predetermined and aren't we just unwitting puppets in God's puppet show? These are the kind of questions people ask today, especially when they begin to push back on a reformed understanding of God and man in salvation. If God is sovereign, then why does he find fault in our failures and sin? Because who can resist his will? Now, on the surface, from a philosophical point of view, this might seem to us to be a fair question. But but understand, this question, like the one we addressed last week, actually is a loaded question. It's based on some big but false assumptions. They are, first of all, if God is in control, then man isn't free. That's the first false assumption. The second assumption is if man is free, then God can't be completely sovereign. Again, that's another false assumption, which leads then to the most important false assumption, which is this, right? 
God's sovereignty is incompatible with man's responsibility. People see it as either or. A lot of people see those things as mutually exclusive. Right? And so the real question being asked is this. If God is truly all-powerful and He is sovereign and He ordains all things that comes to pass and He saves those He wills because of His divine election, doesn't that mean that it is all God's fault that I sin? That's the question people are really asking. Doesn't that mean that God then is the inventor of evil and sin? Doesn't that mean that that what I ultimately do is his fault? Because he makes me do it. I mean, if God is in control, how can I be held responsible for things I do? That's the root of the question. This question, by the way, is what, what Calvin calls impious blasphemy. He says... They make God guilty instead of themselves. And then, having devolved on him the blame of their own condemnation, they become indigent against his great power. The truth is, the question is not objective or rooted in humbly seeking the truth. The question is an arrogant, ignorant attempt to blame God for our own failures. That's what it is. It's it's a blasphemous attempt to blame God for our sin. That's why Paul is so forceful in his answer. Notice how he goes right at him. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's an emphatic statement right there. Paul goes right back to the central misunderstanding. Who are you to question God? What right do you, a creature, have to interrogate the Creator? What right do you have to call God to account? Who are you, O man, a creature made from the dust of the ground to answer back to the God who is the ruler of the entire cosmos? Why would you think that you have the right to be so disrespectful? Is exactly what Paul is asking. What moral ground do you have to call the sovereign king to account? And the answer, obviously, is rhetorical. None. As we talked about last week, God is holy, righteous, and just, and is morally perfect and knows all things. And man is covered in sin. Man, by his will and nature, is a sinner who is morally bankrupt and even, even worse, has a limited view of reality itself. We can't even imagine how big a light year is. But we're going to sit in judgment of the, the king who created it? Mankind has no moral standing to ask God anything. In fact, here's an example, I think, to put this in perspective. Imagine someone like Harvey Weinstein, who was known to be a sexual predator and preyed on many, many women, and he got himself in a lot of trouble because of it. Right? Imagine him then questioning Billy Graham's integrity because Billy Graham lived by a rule where he would never be alone with another woman other than his wife in a, in a car, in his office, to lunch, nowhere. And the reason why he had this rule is so that he could not be caught in a scandal. And imagine Harvey Weinstein Weinstein criticizing Billy Graham and calling him sexist for his attitude towards women. That would be laughable, right? Because Harvey Weinstein would have no moral grounds by which to criticize the Reverend Billy Graham, right? It's the exact same with us and God. 
right? But, but infinitely to a greater degree, mankind is, is the corrupt criminal who tries to blame the judge for his own actions. The fact is simply this, mankind has no moral standing on which to question God. And even worse, mankind's faculties are corrupted by sin. Our minds and our bodies and all of our faculties are, are irreparably corrupted by sin. Our reasoning ability and our ability to judge rightly is flawed and corrupted right, by sin. If you don't believe me, how many of you sat and thought about something, made a decision, and found out that was the wrong thing to do? Right? Come on, raise your hands. We all did. Right? The reality is all of our faculties, even on our best days, are flawed. We are incapable of reasoning clearly and fairly with respect to God and what He chooses to do. Mankind struggles to make good judgments for His own sake, much less judge the Creator of all things. And, and this question ultimately is blasphemy, and it's the height of human arrogance. That's why Paul answers as forcefully as he does, Who are you, you creature of the dirt, to talk back to the living God? And then Paul goes on and says, Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me this way? Or why have you made me like this? Now, there's a number of things that we need to see here and consider. First of all, Paul uses the analogy of a molder and what is molded. This is obviously a reference to a potter and his, his clay. Right? This is, and this analogy that, that Paul applies to God is not something that he just made up on the spot. Paul actually, again, is drawing his readers back to the Old Testament scriptures, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they too use this analogy to draw a distinction between God and man to demonstrate mankind has no basis to question or rebel against God. In Isaiah chapter 29, 16, God says, You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And, 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 and the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Sounds kind of familiar, huh? How about Jeremiah 18.6? God says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. You see, Paul uses this analogy because he's grounding, again, his arguments in the Scriptures as he has been doing throughout the entire letter. And he does this because this analogy helps to demonstrate the absolute vast distinction between God and man. I, I, mean, I mean, again, just think with me for a second about the vast difference between an intelligent, skillful, conscious human being who is a master craftsman and a lump of clay that is made of inanimate dirt, minerals, and water. That's what clay is, right? Okay. Right from the very beginning, we understand that these things are not the same. The man and the clay are not the same. They are vastly different from one another. Right? They're not even in the same categories of existence. And, and even if the human craftsman took some of this dirt and made it and shaped it into the likeness of a human being, that object may be made in the image of the potter, 
but the potter is not like the sculpture. Does that make sense? Because they're still not remotely the same. They're not on the same level. They're not equals. Now, these things have a relationship with one another. The, the clay has a relationship with the potter because the potter is the one who shapes the clay. And the potter is the one who gives the sculpture its purpose and its value. And without the, the, the clay, the potter is still the potter. With all of his faculties, with all of his talent, he is still who he is. But without the potter, the clay is nothing but a bunch of wet dirt. The distinction between the potter and the clay in human terms by itself is staggering. But the distinction between God and man is even greater and more mind-blowing. The distinction between the creator and the creature is unimaginable. Again, the words of Isaiah ring true for us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens, 96 billion light years away, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And, and think of the vastness of the universe. How God, the master craftsman, created it all and is greater than everything he created. And then, in, and then in contrast, we are but a tiny little speck on a tiny little planet in a tiny little galaxy in the vast expanse of the cosmos, all of which was created by, by God. That is the distinction between us and the creator. God is not like us. And that is the context Paul asked the question, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Will the meaningless lump of, of, of water and dirt impugn the character of the one who shaped it and ask, how come you made me this way? It's a ridiculous notion, isn't it? When you really put it in that perspective. And Paul, continuing this analogy, responds with, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel, will, one, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Does, does God not have the right to do what he wants with his own creation? And again, this is a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Of course he does. God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with who he wants, for whatever reason he wants because he's God. He is the potter and we are the clay that we just sang this morning. And we have established that we creatures who were subject to the potter and the potter's will, we are his possession to do as he wills. And, and because, because of our fallen nature, we have no moral ground from which to question him. So, of course, he can do what he wants because he's God. But, but in this verse, there's something essential, I think, to our understanding of this that, that kind of is easy to miss if we're not paying attention. Because notice, again, the question, why have you made me like this? You see, from a human perspective, this question assumes that God is the one who makes mankind sinful. That's what the question assumes. That God is somehow responsible for the willingness and the desire inside of us to sin. That God takes a person who is completely innocent and morally neutral and that he just 
forces them to be something that they wouldn't want to be and that he forces them to do the things that they wouldn't want to do. That's the perspective of the question. That's the objection that many people have to God's sovereignty today. That's the objection that many people have to Christianity in order to justify their sin. Well, if what I'm doing is bad, then it's God's fault because he made me like this. How many times have you heard that in our culture, right? He created me this way. I know what I'm doing isn't sin because God created me this way and God don't make no mistakes. Otherwise, it's his fault. People use this line of thinking to justify any number of of sins, especially sexual immorality. You see, this isn't an innocent question. It is, again, an accusation of God himself and his character. I am like this because you made me this way. And it's his fault. But this question is based, again, on another faulty assumption. It assumes that God created mankind to be sinful. It assumes that God created sin and that that God makes people sinful. But but this simply is a misunderstanding of the facts. In fact, our confession helps us to, I think it's it's helpful here. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith states in chapter 3, beginning in paragraph 1, it puts it this way. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, yet did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. The confession confirms what the Bible clearly teaches us. God is sovereign and man is still endowed with a free will and is responsible for his own actions. That's what the Bible teaches. As John MacArthur once wrote, divine predestination, divine providence, divine power, divine purpose, divine planning does not void human responsibility. The truth is God is sovereign, but he doesn't make or force people to sin. That is the absolute bottom line truth. He doesn't make people do the things they don't want to do. Mankind, in the exercise of his own free will, sins because he wants to. Again, the confession says it this way in chapter 9 of free will. God has endowed human will with natural liberty. I want you to hear this. This is is a Reformed confession from, from, from 1689. God has endowed human will. By the way, this is almost a carbon copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God has endowed human will with the natural liberty and power to act on choices so it's neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. God has not forced anyone to do anything he didn't want to do. Mankind does what he wants to do. Mankind does what he chooses to do. God does not make mankind sinful. God does not force sinners to do horrific things that they do. They do them because they want to do them. The sins that you have committed in your life, you've done because you've chosen to do it. Because you wanted to. Even when you regretted it later, even you were like going, I'm going to regret this later. But the question assumes God is the one who makes mankind do what they do. But wait a minute, Pastor, but Paul's going to say right here that God is the one who makes vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use. God is the one who makes them, right? So doesn't that disprove what you said? 
It, it is true that God can and does do that. But, but the thing that we need to understand is Paul, in this context, is not talking about creation here. You see, many people assume that Paul has in mind God taking mankind in a state of innocence and says, I'm going to make you good, I'm going to make you bad, right? That somehow God is going, I'm going to make you charitable and nice and lovely and sweet, and I'm going to make you the biggest jerk anybody has ever met, right? I'm going to make you the sweetest grandma, I'm going to make you someone who promotes genocide. That's how people assume this works. But that's not what Paul at all is talking about here. Again, notice what he says. Has the potter no right over the clay out to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? You see, Paul is not talking metaphorically about the substance of creation. He's talking about the lump of clay of fallen humanity that already existed. That's the part that we tend to miss. Paul, when he uses the word clay, isn't talking about a state of innocence for mankind. He's talking about mankind after he has already fallen. And the question that Paul is asking is, is doesn't God have the right to do with fallen humanity what he wants to do in order to suit his own purpose? That's what Paul is asking. Doesn't he have the right to use... their free choices and their experiences and their own lives in a way that suits him and his plans? Doesn't he have the right to use their lives in order to accomplish his own ends? And the answer is what? Of course he has the right to do that. He has the right to take the lives, take their lives and their own free choices and work them and weave them in history in a way that suits their his own divine purpose and plan. That's what we believe about God. That's what we declare, right? What do we say in Romans chapter 8? All things work together for good for those who love God and call according to His purpose. How is that possible? Because God works all things, even people's free choices and their mistakes and their sins to accomplish the things that God has set out to accomplish. God has the right to take their lives and free choices and weave them in a way that suits his plan. And the thing that we need to understand is God doesn't make them sinful in order to be able to use them. Instead, he uses those who are already sinful and their lives in a way that doesn't violate their free will, but yet still accomplishes his plan. That's how wise and powerful God is. And notice it says, God makes out of the same lump a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Now, the thing that we get hung up on is how this gets translated in English. The word honorable and dishonorable actually distorts our thinking. It did for me for a long time because we assume that honorable and dishonorable means good or bad. We just assume that that God makes people either good or bad, but that's not at all what Paul's communicating, right? That's not his point. This text is actually better rendered as Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel that's decorative and special and another that is more common for a generic use? In fact, the New Living Translation is helpful as it puts it this way. When a potter makes a jar of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage in? In either case, Both of the vessels have use. Both of them are useful to the one that created them. 
You see, the point of this verse is God has the right to take fallen humanity and take individuals out of the same lump of clay and use them in their lives and their free choices to shape them in a way that is useful to God and His plan and purpose. That's the idea. That God can take fallen humanity and use them in a way that accomplishes His will. You see, every person, no matter who they are, is useful to God and His plan. That's something we don't really think about or talk much about. Everyone is useful to God. I don't know if you realize that. From the person who worships God and then goes to a faraway land to proclaim the gospel of, of Christ to the person who hates the thought of God and does everything in his power to try to make people feel stupid for the faith, God uses all of them to accomplish his purpose of redemption. What do we see in the Scriptures? God used Pharaoh and Pharaoh's free will and Pharaoh's own free choices to accomplish his plan to glorify himself and to redeem his people from bondage from Egypt. The same way that he uses Moses, but God hardened one and he had mercy on the other. Right? How about the New Testament? God used Judas and his free will to betray Jesus to bring about the death of Christ on the cross, which, by the way, is the basis of our redemption. Just as he used Peter and his free will to deny Christ in his hour of need, but then somehow became a bold witness of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. God hardened one and had mercy on the other. And, and the truth is that these men were all the same. They were fallen, broken sinners who were all deserving of God's justice and wrath. None of them... Not any of them deserved God's mercy. Pharaoh, Moses, Judas, Peter were all cut from the same lump of clay. But God in His wisdom and by His sovereign power used these men and their free choices and their lives and shaped them in such a way as to accomplish His own will. Everyone is useful to God and His plan one way or the other from your best friend to your worst enemy. From your grandma who loves you to the person who seems to be out to get you at work. Every one of them are free and make their own choices and they are responsible for those choices, but they are being used right now in God's unfolding plan and purpose. God has the right to work in the lives of the common people to accomplish His divine plan. And what is this divine plan and purpose? Well, that's what Paul kind of points us to in the next text. Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, the part that is so many people miss and want to, to ignore is that mankind, by his own free will and by his own nature, has earned nothing from God except judgment and wrath. Mankind is helpless and hopeless on his own to save himself from the wrath that is to come. Paul says it's been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness, ungodliness of men. He talks about the day that the wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed in Romans chapter 2. The wrath is what makes is, is what man rightly deserves by his own actions, by his own words, and is by his own attitudes. Mankind on his own, by his own choices, through his own fault, 
has earned God's justice. And there's nothing that a man on his own can do to change that. But the good news, God decided and ordained by the counsel of his own will to rescue from this simple, sinful lump of humanity a people for himself. God has ordained to elect certain sinful people to be redeemed. And this is the heart of the issue. It is God's plan of redemption. God in eternity past is ordained to redeem a people for himself, a people who are not deserving of redemption, but a people that God in his grace decided by his own sovereignty and his own choice to save. And it has nothing to do with their nationality. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has nothing to do with their family heritage or who their grandma was or how religiously fervent they are or, or um, how hard they work to try to make God love them in order to be saved. It has to do with God's own purpose of election. God the Father conceived the plan of redemption, which includes using sinful man to accomplish his purpose. God uses mankind as he is in order to bring about his plan of redemption. Don't believe me? That's what we see in Christ. Christ, the Son, entered into history in the middle of this plan and was tortured and killed by men who by their own choice and free will put Jesus to death. God didn't make them do it. They did it because they wanted to do it. But God used them and He used their actions this way so that Christ could secure by His life and death and resurrection the redemption of His people. God used the worst parts of humanity by their own free will. He used them to bring about the greatest possible good. Can you begin to see the glory of how God works through people? Christ paid for our redemption at the hands of men who willingly on their own accord wanted Him dead. And God used sinful men in their free choices to accomplish that purpose. And then God... The Holy Spirit, by His grace, comes to sinful man and supernaturally changes our hearts. What do we sing? Change my heart, O Lord, right? Changes their hearts and applies the redemption of Christ to them. God has the right to use sinful man and man's free choices to accomplish all His purposes. Which then ultimately means God is in fact sovereign and in control at the same time. Man still has a choice and is responsible for his own sin. Again, the words of Spurgeon ring true. He says, from the word of God, I gather that damnation is, is all of man. It's his fault. Top to bottom, and salvation is all of grace from first to last. He that perishes chooses to perish. But he that is saved is saved because God has chosen to save him. C.S. Lewis says it this way, that hell is actually a prison that's locked from the inside. Paul once again destroys the objection that those who struggle with the gospel and, and God's purpose of election, and he, and he does so by making it clear that just because we can't fully understand how God works and how His sovereignty and free will can be compatible doesn't mean God is unfair and that God is somehow responsible for our own failures. Instead, Paul helps us to see that God is actually much greater than our imaginations. And yet, He is still personal, 
and near to all those who call on Him. Paul helps us to see that God is wise and abounding in mercy and will redeem all those who will turn to Christ by faith. I believe John Piper really summarizes this very well. It's a little bit of a long quote, but just bear with me. I think, I, I think you can, I think if you follow along, you'll understand. He says, embrace the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The sad thing is that some embrace the sovereignty of God over, man, over the human will and say, it is wrong to portray God with his arms stretched out, inviting and calling. And the other embraces the responsibility of man and says, if God invites and calls and beckons, then he can't really be sovereign over man's will. And man really is ultimately self-determining and God is not really in control of all things. Both of these are sad mistakes. It is sad because one group rejects something deep and precious about God has revealed about himself for our strength and hope and joy and love, namely his absolute sovereignty. Oh, how sweet it is when all around our soul gives way and we need a reliable firm rock in a world that sometimes seems utterly out of control and meaningless and cruel. Oh, how sweet at these times to know that God is not good and helpless, but good and sovereign. On, and the other group who embrace the sovereignty of God sometimes reject something utterly crucial for our understanding for understanding the justice of God in dealing with people. They fail to see how we should plead with people and persuade people and invite people and woo people with tears to Christ on behalf of Christ. The truth is God is fully sovereign and in control and mankind is completely responsible for his own choices. And, and God uses mankind and those free choices to accomplish his plan to redeem his people. Now, obviously there's a lot more in this text that we need to cover but I'm already prone to go long anyway, so we'll cover that next week. <laughs> but let us wrap up with, with this. If I can leave you with one thing after all that, we all ought to resolve in our minds right now to accept the truth that God is just vastly different from, from us. Right? That, that, that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. But despite that, but despite the fact that we have no basis with, with really to understand God, God has still made a point to reveal himself to us. That God in his grace reveals himself to us in his word. And what we see is that this God is gracious and loving and long-suffering, which means very patient. If you're a parent, you know what that means, right? long-suffering, and merciful as well as sovereign. And this God has sent His Son out of His love into the world to do for us the things that we can't do for ourselves. That God sent His Son in the world to live the perfect life that we cannot live. A life that's required of us, by the way, but we can't do it. We can't live that way. We can't keep the law that we were expected to keep. So He lived to do that for us, and then He died to make atonement for our sins, that He in His own body bore the full weight and the wrath of God on our behalf, that He shed His blood to make atonement for our sins. And then He rose again, proving that God is what He promised to be a Savior, 
and that those promises have not failed us. And he promised that all who come to him by faith, that's the promise, that's the open call of the gospel. He promised that all who come to him by faith will be saved. It is that simple. The truth is that God right now is holding out his hands to sinners and he's beckoning you to come. And anyone who comes, anyone who accepts Christ's free gift of faith, by by faith will be saved. The call is repent and believe the gospel and you'll be saved. And so then what do we do with that? Well, if you have not already done so, if you've not put your faith in Christ, repent and believe the gospel today. As, As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Put your hope in Christ today. The Bible also says that those who trust in in Him will not be put to shame. Paul says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. It's not about what you do. It's not for you need to hurry up and work really hard and get your life straight before for God to love. No, it's turn to Jesus now and hold on to Him and Him alone and He will rescue you. And so if you have not done that, I call you to do that. And if you want to know more about how that works or that, you, that you'd like to know more and want to have assurance that you've already done that, then come talk to me. I'll be happy to walk you through the scriptures on that. But for those who are in Christ, as always, rest in your salvation because it's 100% of God. He did for you all the things that you couldn't do. right? And so, as he said, as Paul says, what's, what, what started in the spirit is not going to be perfected in the flesh. right? You need to hold on to Christ. And when you fall down and make a mess of things, as you will, don't run from God. Turn to Him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Change my heart because I can't do it on my own. Trust in Him and rest in Him. And then finally, let us be willing vessels in the hand of God. Let us be the vessels that He's prepared that He uses to go out into the world and shares His hope with our neighbors and our friends and our community so that they too can experience the love and the grace of God that he's calling them to. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.